0: Well good morning everyone, Uh, if you've just joined us or you're visiting we're in week three of simplifying our lives. So I hope you picked up on that. Um, And uh, it's simplicity is uh, the name of the game. We've been looking at that for three weeks now. And I don't know whether you feel that uh, week three, you suddenly feel that your life is more simple and straightforward. It'd be lovely if it was as easy as that. But simplicity in our culture is tough, it's countercultural, and it's difficult for us. How do we really live for what matters in life? And this psalm that Andy has just read for us this beautiful psalm is a psalm that from start to finish it's known as one of the everlasting psalms in that from start to finish it talks about the everlasting love and power of God it's one of the alphabet psalms which was known to sort of have no end if you like an unending hymn of praise from David And I remember um, when I went to university my first year, I remember we packed my car up, it wasn't my car at the time, but my family's car up, with three boxes of really all I possessed, and we drove them to uh, where I was staying in London. And that was my life then, three boxes, kind of tough crate boxes. And I remember a poster on my wall at uni that uh, was a lovely William Morris poster. You remember the kind of Athena posters and different ones that we used to up with Blue Tack and uh, it said, "Have nothing in your home that you do not declare to be truly beautiful or really necessary and I believed that you know I thought that 's my mantra that 's how I want to live either it 's beautiful or it 's necessary But how many of our homes now could we honestly say, if we did a keyhole kind of through the keyhole, uh, and I speak personally now, I couldn't confidently say that everything that I have in every room of my house is beautiful or necessary. I'm sure there's a grey area where you kind of think, why have I still got that random thing? Uh, And we're hanging on to it. And the psalmist, if you like, is saying, as we magnify, we simplify that as we say we live for a world bigger than this, beyond this, we're living if we're Christians today for a kingdom that is an eternal kingdom, some of the things that you and I get preoccupied about and worried about and confused about suddenly start to fade away. They don't go away, but they start to gain a perspective, if you like, about what really, really matters in our lives. How then do we that simplicity that is the goal of the gospel, that Jesus talked about coming as a child. Why did he say that children would be our leaders? Because they got this. They got that it was about presence, that it was about the presence of God, that it was about being loved. And he didn't turn them away. He wanted us to, to live like that. Charlie Chaplin said, simplicity is not a simple thing. How true that is uh, as we look at this. Um, a quote that I really love, and again, apologies that it is C.S. Lewis again, I was saying at first service that I don't know what he ever ate for breakfast, but it um, must have been some good porridge, I think, because he just came out with so many beautiful pictures and wisdom. I'm, I'm a, a Twitter follower of his, I don't know if you're on Twitter and if you follow him, but he's uh, although he's dead, he is uh, still tweeting, which is remarkable, isn't it? Power from the grave. But it says this, if you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things money can by become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed with a street light. And if you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with a firework. And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures." And that resonates with me. As someone who lives in the present and finds it hard sometimes to think of the future, that is a beautiful challenge to me. Have we fallen in love with this world? When actually, as David says, there is a world, an everlasting eternity that we are part of. Have the, the toys of this world, if you like, the glitter of this world, taken us in and made us think that actually we need them? And when you think about what complicates your world today, many of the things that stop us living simply are the entanglements of sin in our lives. Either things that we maybe have done wrong or things that have been done to us or around us. As we look at our world, that's true. As we look at the mess perhaps facing our nation, how do we unravel it? How do we untangle it? As we look at our own preoccupations and our own conflicted values, how do we untangle what really matters? And having been recently to the funerals of two men who have lived lives that are righteous, lives that actually point us to another world, it makes me think, as we look at this psalm, that actually what really matters starts to shrink. You know, I read recently that really when we face our own mortality, two things really matter. One is, are we right with those we love and are we right with God? other things really start to pass away. And actually that simplifies some of the preoccupations that each of us have. So I'm gonna go through a few of the verses in the latter part of the psalm, looking at the greatness of God through four of the names of God. Names of God, there are many of them in the Bible, many of them in the Old Testament that lead, if you like, to the New Testament, Emmanuel, God with us, one of the names that is Jesus' name. But the Hebrew names of God, that actually as David declares the greatness of God, he's calling on. The first is El Olam, eternal God. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That reminder that actually God's kingdom is outside of time. The Bible says a thousand years are like a day. And as this alphabetic psalm goes through, there is that sense of transience of our lives, but the permanency of the gospel Um, This name was given, incidentally, when Abraham planted a tree. He planted a tree in a place that was called Elolam, and it was a tree that had 500,000 seeds per plant. A tree that was placed in the place of eternal God. It was uh, planted, it was a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and a long-lasting tree. In other words, a tree that had so many seeds in each plant that the legacy of that tree was an everlasting one. Hence the name El Olam, eternal God. Your kingdom is an eternal one. And one of my failings, I know, can be to overcommit, to think that my diary, if you like, has got to govern me. You know, do you control your diary or does it control you, someone once said to me, and how true that is. And I know God's been good to me because I know there are times when I have overcommitted and I have literally, maybe not physically, but metaphorically, held my diary out to God and said, please reorder this for me. I've got it wrong. And actually, if God's timing is what we're actually in tune with, he can do that. He can help us, even as we worship him, to think, do I really need to be preoccupied with that particular thing and help us to lay it down? The Bible in another psalm uh, in the Old Testament says, "'Teach me to number my days aright, that I might gain a heart of wisdom.'" The reordering of our diaries. The second name that comes in verse 15 and again really in 16 is a name that will be familiar to many of you, uh, Jehovah Jireh, uh, the one that provides or the one that sees ahead. That's the actual breakdown of the name and in this verse David says the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. In other words David's saying I can trust you to see ahead of where I can see. I can trust that your vision goes ahead of me and uh, if you know the story this comes again from Abraham where Abraham was called to take his son Isaac as a sacrifice up the mountain one of the most astonishing uh, accounts I think in the Old Testament and actually as he's walking up sacrificially holding the thing that he loves the most the longed for one in his hands we hear that the the ram was in the thicket coming up the other side of the mountain unseen by Abraham. He couldn't see the provision. All he can see is that God is asking him to let go. And although that's massive, that's beyond, certainly beyond my comprehension, that is a biblical premise that as we let go, things start to fall into place. That simplification comes maybe when we do let go of what we're hanging on to. And I wonder what it is that we're hanging on to today. Kierkegaard, in one of his um, brilliant essays, says, To let go is to lose your foothold temporarily. To not let go is to lose your foothold forever. I'll read that again. To let go is to lose your foothold temporarily. To not let go is to lose your foothold forever. In other words, sometimes the things that we're clinging to that are not doing us any good actually be our destruction rather than our friend and actually we can surrender them as Abraham does there the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time now it'd be easy to get a bit enchanted by that verse and think that we've got some sort of fairy godmother who's going to answer all our prayers this Christmas with a big ribbon and It it would be easy to misinterpret that verse, wouldn't it? Maybe it's one of the verses that makes us think about prosperity, but we know that some of the most contented people are actually some of the people who have very little in life. Those of us who've traveled and, and hearing from the Wilsons today, we know that actually sometimes simplification comes when everything else is stripped away. So if God is provider, then we need to align our needs way more to what really is at the heart of what we need. That the things that perhaps we cry out for are not always the things that do us the most good, but he will provide for us. Uh, he is never found wanting in our lives. And uh, certainly I know for me, many, many times, undeservedly sometimes, he has provided for me incredible ways. The third name that we look at in the psalm, um, I pronounce it (coughs) Sidquenu, Um, sometimes you can spell it with QU as well, is that David talks about you are righteous, God, you are trustworthy, I can trust you, that some of the chaos and the whirling around that each of us have can be trusted, that God's righteousness covers, if you like, our own failings. And many of the sins, many of the things that you and I get wrong are what us up but actually at this time as we look at advent as we start to look towards jesus we know that he has given us the righteousness of jesus that we start every day afresh if we call on his name if we ask for forgiveness and I need reminding of that, and I'm sure many of you today will need reminding of that, that whatever you've done, maybe in a, in a secret place, maybe in a way you perhaps feel even you've let God down, his love for us was so great and is so great that he sent his son Jesus. David is pointing, if you like, to the righteousness that will come through the person of Jesus, that there is nothing that we have done that his love isn't deeper still. And we're reliant on that. We were talking in our community group on Thursday about why is it that children get the simplicity of the kingdom perhaps more than we do. And uh, somebody there, I think it was Nick, said actually the great thing with children is that actually today is all there is. You know, they've forgotten yesterday, and they're not thinking about tomorrow. They just want to know what they're supposed to be doing today. And we lose sight of that, don't we, as we overcomplicate. But there's something about the forgiveness and grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that says this is a new day. And if that's for you today, it is a new day. The old is gone, and as Cory ten Boom said, our sins are under the sea, no fishing. Uh, they're under the sea and no fishing and how true that is and then the final uh, declaration at the end of the psalm is the lord is near he is close he is there el shama which means the closeness of god and the closest thing to the new testament where we see jesus emmanuel and where the presence of God is, Spurgeon says, wherever it can be said of a community that the Lord is there, there will be a fostering of unity. And I am jealous for that, for this church, that actually because God's presence is with us, we are united. We may not agree on everything, but actually the call is to be united, to love one another, to excel in one, loving one another. Where he is, unity dwells. And I think some of that is aligning ourselves to what really matters in our lives. One of the reasons that we have a vision statement for this church is because we don't want to get involved in doing too many different things because there are lots of brilliant churches in Birmingham. And we've recently shared with you that we feel called to reflect and transform Birmingham because people belong to thriving communities where they're getting to know Jesus. And actually that becomes a filter where we can simplify because there is a statement there it's not the whole of the vision but it's a statement where you can filter through does this do that and the same for your life and my life we have a purpose if you look at the person to the left of you and the right of you you have a purpose uniquely to you that they can't fulfill not even close You have a unique fingerprint, as some of you know, I uh, nearly got thrown out of prison once for sharing that. But uh, nevertheless, it's true that our DNA is so unique that we have an imprint that we can make on the world. And actually, sometimes, maybe the challenge for our New Year's, I try and do this, and Andy challenged us, I think, a couple of weeks ago, about what the word might be that you're meditating on. You know, what might be the rule of life that you and I have that we say, that's what I'm about. I'm here for that. I'm here for that. Or I dedicate this year, simplifying by saying, that's the call on my life this year. Uh, I was once at one of these uh, slightly bonkers prophetic conferences in some ways, where you're supposed to walk up to someone and kind of prophesy over them. And I I found it incredibly difficult and didn't quite know what to do. And a man walked up to me and he just went extravagant. And I immediately started to spiral and think, oh no, he thinks I'm an overspender or that I'm wearing something too posh and thinking, oh no. And then he paused and he said, extravagant love. That is your calling, extravagant love. And he didn't know me from Adam, but I've never forgotten it. And the same week I had a card uh, that was actually about excelling in love and keeping going in that. And that will be different for all of us in some ways. It will be expressed differently in all of us. But it's good to have just a phrase or something that you can go back to that you think, "Am, am I doing that? Am I living that out? And how do we do that? As we come back to the end of the psalm, we do it through magnifying him. We prayed earlier on as we sang that actually more of you, God, more of you, God. And as we declare that, as we ask for more of him, some of that stuff is stripped away. Some of that tangling that we get preoccupied or that we get complicated with starts to fall away. As we come to a close, you might be thinking, well, this is all very well and good. This is the Old Testament, but what does Jesus say about simplifying? And a passage that we often come back to as a church that we're often quite challenged by is the passage where Jesus encounters the two sisters, Mary and Martha. And, you know, if you know the story, Martha is rushing around when Jesus is there. She's doing many things. She's very servant-hearted, very domesticated, and Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus. And understandably, I've got quite a lot of sympathy with Martha sometimes. You know, she says, you know, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve on my own? Um, And he says this, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken from her, the presence of Jesus, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And as we worship, whether it's when you're running, when you're on your way to work, whether you're dropping children at the school gate, uh, whether it's first thing in the morning, it is a brilliant discipline, a brilliant way of simplifying to worship the living God first, and suddenly the rest of your day starts to fall into place a little bit more. I don't know about you, but I love a list. And one of my ways of uh, ordering my life is to pray, to journal, and to write a list um, of that day. And sometimes when you do that, you think, actually, does that really need to be there? That it's a way of ordering our lives around the principles of what God has called each of us to. And I wonder as we close, whether you hear Jesus saying your name there, you're worried and troubled about many things, but what is needed, the good part, is sitting at the feet of Jesus, understanding his love for us, his closeness to us, his provision for us, his forgiveness of us. And suddenly, those things start to fall into place. Jesus said that we were to love our God with all our heart and to love our neighbour as ourselves. If we haven't got a vision statement, then maybe that's it. That actually as we run our lives through that, we come to the words of Jesus that are life to us, that are those words of eternal life. I'm going to close just with a story from a book um, that is uh, very precious uh, to me. Uh, Jerry Sitzer, as some of you know, wrote a book uh, many years ago uh, about his grief, the multiple grief that he experienced when he lost uh, three of his family. And he wrote a book called A Grace Disguised. And then 15 years later, he's written another book, which is called A Grace Revealed, about redemption about how life can be good again but different again and how actually through deep pain his life has been reordered and redeemed and he talks about um, a picture that he and his kids had from a National Geographic calendar I don't know if any of you know those that they have some beautiful photographs in them and it was a picture of a scene in California uh, that his boys loved and they said can we just keep it on September because it's so beautiful and it was a beach scene with a waterfall cascading down the cliffs and they loved it so much they just didn't change from September and then two years later they were out walking in California and his youngest son shouts out I found it I found it I found it and they all go running and there this lad is standing right in the middle of the photograph He can actually sense the spray. He can feel the sand under his toes. He's in the picture, the very picture that they've had on their wall for those years. And he says that to him is almost how we hold up heaven, that at the moment we see that photograph on the fridge, that National Geographic picture. We know it's good. We know it's beautiful. We know it's beyond anything, but we, we don't fully yet understand it. But one day we will one day we will actually be in it and inhabit all that the kingdom is, the eternal kingdom that David knew. David knew that he'd got things wrong in his life. He knew that he'd messed up, but he also knew the eternal, relentless love and forgiveness of God.